Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Well, if you remember in Hebrews chapter 7, the, the point of Hebrews chapter 7 was to establish that the Lord Jesus Christ is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the point was then further that this made him better than the Levitical priests. And you remember the way that that chapter ended. He is the one who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, higher than the heavens, who offered up himself as a sacrifice once for all, able to save to the utmost those who come to God through him, as he always lives to make intercession for his people. And he is serving as the priest, not as a man who has weaknesses, but as the son who is perfected forever. The reason I say that is because in the beginning of verse 8, the very first thing, chapter 8, the very first thing that's said is the main point of all these things we are saying is this. The main point, the sum of it all is we have such a high priest. Uh, the, the point of chapter 8 is to say the priest that was described in chapter 7, who truly is the priest after the order of Melchizedek, is the priest that we have. He is such a priest. We have this, this very person as our high priest. And as we move into to chapter 8 and chapter 9, the, 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 the point that the author is going to be laboring to show is that if, he, if it is the case that we have such a high priest, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, who is not prevented by death from continuing to serve, who is the one appointed by the oath of God, then it must be as well further that this priest after the order of Melchizedek must have a glorious ministry as the priest. And so the point of chapters 8 and 9 is now to move from describing Christ simply as, as the priest after the order of Melchizedek in general terms to describe the way in which he serves as priest. How is it that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills his ministry. Uh, he's not just a superior priest than the Levitical priesthood in that he's been appointed the priest after the order of Melchizedek, but also he is the one who has a superior ministry, being the mediator of the better covenant, built on better promises, offering a better sacrifice, never to be repeated. Now, if all of this is true, and the Lord Jesus Christ is here described as our great priest, then the question to ask is, where does he serve? Where does he offer these sacrifices? If we say the one sacrifice of himself, where does he actually make uh, the offering? Where is the temple? You, when you think of, of priests, we immediately also think of a temple. Where is the temple where the Lord Jesus Christ serves? And where is the sacrifice he brings? And the answer that's given in chapters 8 and 9 is this. As the priest after the order of Melchizedek, he is the minister in the heavenly sanctuary. The place where he serves, the temple where he offers a sacrifice is in heaven. And the sacrifice he brings is the sacrifice of himself. Now, what this will mean is, as, we'll, as we will see, is that every biblical priest in all times, uh, they serve merely on earth, which makes them far 
uh, inferior to the Lord Jesus Christ, but also further, because there's a connection between the earthly ministry, ministry of the priests, the Levitical priests in the Old Testament, and the heavenly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, it means that everything that the priests did in the Old Testament, everything that they did in the Old Testament, was meant to point forward and to teach us something about the heavenly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that the priests did, every sacrifice that they offered, was meant to show us something about the Lord Jesus Christ and the way in which He would serve uh, in heaven. You, you, if you think about it in terms of the, the burnt offering, also known as the ascension offering, where you have the smoke that rises to God, it, the, the idea is with that particular offering, the smoke goes up to heaven and God is able to smell it in heaven and then His wrath is appeased so that, to, so that He's no longer angry with His people. In the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice, He Himself goes to heaven to present the sacrifice to God. And thus, He is the one who is able to open the way, not simply to a small room on earth, which is merely a shadow and type of the true place where God dwells, as all the priests did. They could only open the way for, for some to enter, into a thing that was merely a room on earth. But the Lord Jesus Christ, having gone into heaven itself, serving in the temple which is heaven, is able to open the way for all to, to approach God in heaven. And that is really the, the burden of everything that the, that the author of the Hebrews is seeking to show. The point that he's going to make in chapter 10 is, is as he's summing up the theology of this section of the book of Hebrews, is to say, we have this access. We have this access to God through this priest, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, who is serving not, not in the, this creation, but rather in the new creation, able to bring us in himself. Brothers and sisters, as the author puts it in verse 1, such is the high priest that you have. The sum of everything is to recognize this is the high priest that you have. Now, there's quite a lot of things in, in um, Hebrews chapter 8 the goal for this week will be to give an overview of the entire chapter. Then next week, we're going to look at some of the details at how the temple points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, um, then the week after that, we're going to look at the relationship between the Old and the New Covenant, as we have the quotation from Jeremiah 31 in the, the back half of this particular chapter. So this week, we're going to be looking at the text as a whole, where we'll see, uh, we'll, where we'll see really uh, two main things. We'll see how Christ is the high priest of the new covenant. This is really the, the thing that is shown in verses 1 to 6. And then we have uh, in verses 7 through 13, the Old Testament support for this. The idea is that Christ, Christ is the priest who serves not according to the old covenant and the old ways with the old creation, but the new covenant which points to the new creation in heaven itself. And then even further, the author says the Old Testament teaches this. The Old Testament itself teaches that when the true Messiah would come, there would have to be this new covenant where he would serve. And so we'll look uh, at, at those two points. First verses, again, one to six for Christ and him being the high priest of the new covenant. And then in verses seven through 13, the Old Testament support taken from uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. And again, the, 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 the point of the whole is to say, Christ is the high priest who serves in heaven. He serves in heaven, not on earth, uh, not of this creation as we will see. So, so look with me again then at verses 1 through 6. So the way that verses 1 through 6 fall out, the first two verses speak of Christ uh, 
as the priest of heaven. So it's basically just declared. Verses 3 to 5 then gives argumentation. How is it that we know that the Lord Jesus Christ really is this priest in heaven? And he shows that there is no possibility for, for him to be offering any kind of sacrifice on earth. And therefore, he must be, if he is a real priest, must be serving in heaven. And then verse 6 is the conclusion. And so look with me then, uh, again, even, even more at, at verses 1 through uh, one and 2. We have, after this statement that we have such a high priest, which is meant to be a transition, a transition from chapter 7 to uh, now beginning to, to show in more detail the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have two descriptions in verses 1 and 2 of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two things that are said about him as high priest. First, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then secondly, he serves in the sanctuary, the tent pitched by God, not pitched by man. So there are, there are two things, that he sits down at the right hand of God, that he serves in this tent, which is quite a bit different from um, the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament and its worship. So those are the two things that are said, and we'll take those in turn. So, so notice, when it says that the Lord Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of God, this is something that the author to, uh, to the Hebrews has emphasized all throughout the letter. All throughout the letter, we've seen these descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ sitting down at the right hand of God. For, so for instance, at the beginning of the letter, in verse 3 of, of chapter 1, the author says, after making a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So there's this connection then between Christ making this atonement for sins, and then after that, he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see also at the end of chapter 1, at the end of the, of the, the comparison with the angels, he says, to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So there again, we have this idea of uh, quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1, we have this idea of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, sitting down at the right hand of God. We have another description of, of Christ sitting down at the right hand of God here. And also in chapter 10, verse 11, both here and there being part of an extended comparison with the priests of the Old Testament, showing that Christ is far superior to them. And then finally, we have in uh, chapter 12, verse 2, Christ as the author and finisher of our faith, who uh, who uh, gave up his own life, despising the shame, then it sat down at the right hand uh, of the Father. All of these descriptions of Christ sitting down, this emphasis on Christ sitting down at the right hand of the Father, go all throughout the book of Hebrews. And all of them are built on Psalm 110, verse 1. So where, why is the author focusing so much on the idea that Christ, as our King, would sit down at the right hand of the Father? It's because of Psalm 110, verse 1, which speaks of every enemy being placed uh, under, under his feet. And so the idea here is that Psalm 110, verse 1, describes Christ, the Messiah, as the king at the right hand of God who has every enemy under his feet. Psalm 110, verse 4, describes, we've been seeing in, in chapter 7, describes the Messiah as the priest serving forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we have two verses from Psalm 110 that really show basically most of the theology of the book of Hebrews. Uh, they clearly form the foundation for the entire letter. Now, why is it significant? What, what, what is the author trying to communicate? So he, he's emphasizing this idea that Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why is that so important? There are really two things that this indicates in terms of, of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ and his service both as priest and king. And first is the idea that it shows that his work is finished. And then secondly, that he is, in fact, 
both king and priest. So he finishes his work, and then also he is both priest and king. And this is seen um, here in, in the text as it's quoted uh, in, in chapter 8, but particularly in chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, the idea of Christ finishing his work. So there, the, the priests of the Old Testament are described as standing. They stand always in the sanctuary, offering sacrifices that ultimately cannot take away sins. But Christ shows that he is the one who is able forever to take away sins in that after he made his sacrifice, he sat. He sat showing that there was nothing else to be done. The priests had to stand because after they get finished with one of their sacrifices, their offerings, they always had to look forward to the next one. And so they would stand night and day, always offering the same sacrifices that could never take away sins. Christ offers himself once and then sits down at the right hand of the Father. It is the way the author to the Hebrews says that Christ's work was finished, as Christ said on the cross. It is finished. It's finished. He sits down. That is the reason, uh, the, the reason why there is this description. Now, the other thing, the other important thing that the author is indicating is that Christ is both priest and king. He is the king who sits down at the right hand of God, having every enemy under his feet, and he's also the priest who serves after the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110, verse 4. Uh, and this is one of the things that's, that's quite amazing and interesting with the book of Hebrews, that what the author is indicating is that the exaltation of Christ as king over every enemy is tied to his sacrifice of atonement. Uh, these two things you don't normally think of as going together. Um, usually we think of a, of a king defeating all of his enemies by force of arms by you know, ruling and conquering. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is, is that he as priest makes atonement for sins, and in so doing, he conquered all of his enemies. And so it's the act of his death, his atoning sacrifice, whereby he both atones for sins and defeats his enemy, the devil. This, is the, the, this was hinted at even in chapter one, verse three. After making a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He makes a purification for sins as our priest, and then he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high as our king. He is the one who is the priest king. And all this really in fulfillment of what was already prophesied in Zechariah chapter 6, in verse 13, where it says, yes, he, speaking of the branch, the, uh, a term for the Messiah, yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest of on his throne. The one who builds the house of the Lord is the one who will be a priest over, uh, a priest on his throne. Christ rules over every enemy as he makes atonement for sins. He is our great king and priest. This is, this is what the author is indicating. When you think about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of God, who finished his work never to be repeated, who is our, both our priest and our king, the one who rules as king, as the priest who made atonement for the sins of his people. Now notice, then secondly, the second thing that's said about him is that he serves in the tent pitched by the Lord, not by man. So here there is this, this, this comparison, this contrast between uh, two different tents. What's the, the tent that's pitched by man? The tent that's pitched by man is the tabernacle. So the idea is that the priests in the Old Testament, particularly in the days of Moses, they, had, they served in a tent 
that man had to erect. So, you know, with, with the tabernacle, you know, they would, um, when they were moving through the wilderness, they would have to take the tent down. There were certain uh, groups of Levites who would take certain things, they would move. And then when the, the cloud would stop and rest, then they would repitch the tent. And then it was when they repitched the tent that they would be able to, the priest would be able to go in and they'd be able to serve uh, as the priest and offer their various sacrifices. Well, if we were to ask then, where is the tent that Christ serves in? The answer is, is that there is a tent that was pitched not by man, but rather by God. And that's the one that the Lord Jesus Christ serves in. And therefore, he must be, he must be a far more glorious priest than any of the Levitical priests and is able to grant access into something far greater than any of them ever could. Uh, they could, if you only offer sacrifices on earth, then you can only get access to a place on earth. Christ offers sacrifices in heaven, in the new creation, as we'll see, in order to show that he is the one who grants access to the new creation. Even, in fact, the link with the new creation is clear in chapter 9, verse 11, where there's another description of the more perfect tabernacle, where it says, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. So they, again, the idea is not pitched by man, but pitched by God, not made with hands, that is, the meaning of that is, it's not of this creation. It's not of this creation. Christ serves as the priest of the new creation, serving in heaven, that you might be able to enter into the new creation yourself, that you might be counted as part of this new creation, that the resurrection of the dead that Christ experienced in the new creation might be yours as well. Uh, that's the purpose of Christ's service in the tent that is not made with hands, the one that's pitched by the Lord. And this, brothers and sisters, is the glory of your high priest. This is the glory of your high priest. And um, if this is the case, then again, the, the, the question that's sort of always lurking in the background is, is how, how do we know? How, how do we know that this is the case? How, how do we know that Christ is actually serving in heaven? Uh, where is the place where he serves? You know, that's, that's always the, 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 the thing that the author is, is wanting to, to drive us back to. And this is where the author tries to, to, shows it and proves that Christ is such a high priest and he does have this ministry in verses 3 to 5, where he uses arguments to show that Christ must have his priesthood in heaven. So how is it that we know that Christ actually has his priesthood in heaven? He starts in verse 3 by saying that uh, every priest, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. This is something he's already mentioned in chapter 5, verse 1, a general statement about priests. And the implication is, then further in verse 3, if Christ is a high priest, then he must also have something to offer. He must also have a place where he's offering sacrifices. Now, the problem with him offering sacrifices on earth, as it says in verse 4, is that there's already priests who offer sacrifices on earth. If he were of the earth, then he'd be a Levitical priest. They are the ones who offer the sacrifices on earth. Kind of implicit here in the argument is, is that God will not appoint competing priesthoods. So there's an earthly priesthood and there's already priests there. There's no room for a priest after the order of Melchizedek on earth. And if that's the case then, if that's the case, then the implication further is, Christ must not be a priest who offers his sacrifices on earth. He must be one who offers his sacrifices somewhere else. And the answer is, if you're asked where then is that place, the answer that the author is giving is, he's the one that offers them in heaven. Even further, he says in, in verse 5, there is already in the instructions given for the tent pitched by man, there was already an indication that 
that ministry itself was meant to point to the greater reality of the heavenly ministry. This is what, what the author says then in verse 5. Those who offer the earthly sacrifices, they themselves have this ministry as serving in but the copy and the shadow of the true one. And the author will go further in saying that this was known in even made known directly to Moses, that Moses understood when he received the instructions to build the tabernacle, that he was going to command the people to set up this tent, which was merely a copy and a reflection of the thing that was truly, uh, that was truly going to be fulfilled in heaven. It was but a copy and a shadow uh, of, the, of heaven itself. And that's one of the reasons why we know that in the Old Testament, that the Old Testament saints would have understood, they did understand, that there needed to be something more than Levitical sacrifices. There had to be something more. Because the Levitical sacrifice and the whole system, the whole, the whole system of the tent, as we'll see particularly in a lot of detail next week, uh, the whole system of the tabernacle was meant to point to the glory of a new creation. Everything in the tabernacle points to the glorious reality of the new creation. And therefore, if the Levitical priests come, they offer sacrifices and then no new creation, then clearly there must be another ministry that is not going to be of the earth. There can't be another one on earth because they're already doing the thing on earth. But the one in earth itself points to the reality of the heavenly that must be fulfilled by another. And the one who fulfills that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the train of thought of verses 3 to 5. If Christ is a priest, he must have a place to offer sacrifices. There's already those on earth. He can't be the one who does it on earth. Therefore, he does it in heaven. The one on earth points to the reality of the heavenly place of sacrifice, the heavenly sanctuary where Christ serves as our priest. This is, this is, this is the theology that the author of the Hebrews is giving. Christ has, therefore, in verse 6, a better ministry. He must have a better ministry. He is the mediator of a better covenant, which is built upon better promises. The better ministry is the heavenly one, the one that is the fulfillment of uh, the ministry of the old covenant and uh, the, the, the new covenant and not the old. This is, uh, this brothers and sisters is the, the priest that we have, the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And just a reminder, you know, I, I know it can be uh, very difficult with regard to all of the details that the author of the Hebrews gives, and there's a lot of things that he's bringing out from the scriptures, a lot of theological points that are made. And it's a good thing always to remember when we're in this particular section in the book of Hebrews to remember what the goal is. Everything is driving to the exhortation that begins in chapter 10, verse 19. The idea being, we can enter the Holy of Holies in Christ. We can enter the Holy of Holies in Christ let us therefore hold fast to our confession of faith. Every, every theological point that the author makes from chapter 7 all the way to the middle of chapter 10 is meant to drive you to this conclusion. If I have access to God in the holy of holies, far better than anything on this earth, what, what, what could someone possibly do to you if you have access to God in the holy of holies? If this is what you have, then hold fast to your confession of faith. He who promises is faithful. He who promises is faithful. Endure to the end. Let us not forsake meeting with one another. Let us, let us continue to, to think about how we can stir up one another in love and good deeds. Let us joyfully, as the author will say later in chapter 10, let us joyfully endure the plundering of our possessions for the sake 
of this gospel. Let us look to all those who came before us, the, all of the Old Testament saints who persevered in the faith and who attained the goal in the end. Uh, that, is, that is the thing that you must always keep in mind when we think about all these theological points. We want to understand them very carefully, but we want to understand that everything that the author is saying is, is grounding you. It's meant to ground you in the faith that when you face difficulties in this life, when you face persecutions and trials, that you understand the glory of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have something far greater than any Levitical priest could ever give to you. And because of that, then, how can you think of turning back? How can you ever possibly think of turning back? Every theological point made in the letter is building towards the foundation that you need to be able to persevere in the faith. And that's the point. We have such a high priest who can grant you this access. If you have this access, then hold fast to your confession. Now, as we've seen over and over again in the book of Hebrews, every theological point that's made, it, it points you to this end, pastorally, to endure, but it's always supported from Scripture. And, and for, the old, for the authors of the Hebrews, it would have been the Old Testament. We've seen this over and over again. Every single point that he makes is always, is always grounded in the Scriptures. Uh, part of what this means, then, is that the Old Testament has, and has the same message as the New. It points to the same realities as the New. It, it, everything in the Old Testament was meant to point to the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is our great priest and that we have access to God in Him. There's nothing in the Old Testament that contradicts that. Everything is pointing to this reality. And so, what would seem to be a strange thing, to, you, you think, how could you go to the Old Testament to, to speak about, as, as the author says here, the undoing of the Mosaic Covenant? You know, that seems like quite a New Testament thing, does it not? Um, the undoing of the Mosaic Covenant and the establishment of, of another priest, it's not going to be a Levitical priest, the end of the Mosaic institutions with the Levitical priesthood. And the author, in fact, does say that this, in fact, comes from the Old Testament. That when Jeremiah prophesies about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, that he is prophesying of the days when the Mosaic covenant would be eclipsed by a new and better covenant. And if that's the case, then the Mosaic institutions must also be gone to make way for a new priest who will be able to fulfill them in a greater way. So Moses knew when he received the instructions for the tabernacle that the covenant that he was giving was provisional. It, 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 he was given instructions concerning a ministry that could not give the full things promised. And Jeremiah then prophesies further and says there is coming a day when there will be a new covenant. Obviously, uh, in the days of Jeremiah, the reason why you need a new covenant is because you've broken it. That's the reason why the exile is coming. That's the, the message of the book of, of Jeremiah. The exile is coming. You've broken the covenant. But, but Jeremiah is saying there's coming a day when you will have a better covenant, which will not be broken like this one. You're about to go through the judgment that is that is you've accrued for yourself because of your breaking of that covenant. But there will be a new covenant whereby your sins will be forgiven. And that's what uh, is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 34. And that is quoted uh, in full in, uh, in verses 7 through 12, or in verses uh, 8 through 12. Now, a few things to bring out about this. Now, again, I, I mentioned a couple weeks we'll be um, 
looking at the distinctions between the Old and New Covenant in, in a lot of detail. So this will be just something of an overview in terms of this particular text. But notice there's a, there's a few things uh, that are promised. Uh, specifically, notice the, the, the contrast between the Old and the New Covenant that Jeremiah makes is that is first that the Old Covenant was broken. And that's, a, that's a, something that's going to be distinct from the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was broken because when the Old Covenant was given, it was, came in word only and not also with the promise of the Spirit. So if God doesn't sovereignly give his people obedience, they'll break the covenant. The New Covenant, by way of implication, being given not, and will not be broken, means that God himself will turn the hearts of his people uh, back to himself. Uh, and notice as well, even further, uh, that in, in the prophecy in Jeremiah, that the contrast is specifically with the Mosaic co Covenant. When we think of the Old Covenant, you can think of, um, really, there's, there's a number of different administrations of the Old Covenant. There are other covenants that are sort of wrapped up in the Old Covenant. And many of them are more promissory. There's promises that are made. And the promises, of course, point to the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice here, he's not saying the Abrahamic Covenant is going to be eclipsed but particularly the Mosaic Covenant. That's exactly what we see happening in the New Covenant itself, that all the food laws are done away with, all the sacrifices are done away with, and that's because of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The tabernacle was set up according to the pattern on the mountain, as it says in verse 5. This was glorious, but Jeremiah 31 teaches that it is not permanent, and it's not permanent because the people broke the covenant. Now, Sometimes the question is asked, why is it, why is it that we do not uh, follow and obey the Old Testament ceremonies? As a Christian church, we have no Passover, no Feast of the Tabernacles, no Feast of Weeks, no animal sacrifices, no required circumcision, no food laws. Um, you know, the question would be, weren't these things all given to the people of God to observe forever? Isn't it the case that God doesn't change? And if God never, never changes, doesn't this mean that the law will never change? Now notice the answer given here is that even in the Old Testament, it says that these laws will change. That's the point of what, of the quotation from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is saying that there's coming a day when there will be a new covenant that will not be like the Mosaic covenant, which means the Mosaic institutions will be gone. Um, it's not that God has changed, is that Christ has come, and therefore the people of God have entered into a greater reality of the blessings, and their worship must match the reality of the coming of Christ. That's, that's the point that's being made. And this is the reason why, uh, why we don't do uh, any of the things that are, that are particularly mosaic. Uh, this is really the, the point of, of really Hebrews chapter 7 through 10, all of it, is to say, all of the ministry of the Levitical priest is inferior. All of it is inferior to what is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It must go away. It must go away because we have the one who is serving in the true tabernacle. We don't need the old tabernacle. We don't need the old animal sacrifices. Christ is the one who is, in fact, serving and has given the once and for all sacrifice, sat down, which means there's no longer any need for any other, uh, for any other sacrifice. And this is... This is, uh, particularly in the book of Hebrews, why there is such a seriousness about, about the, the, the danger of continuing in Mosaic Old Testament uh, regulations. Uh, basically, in the book of Hebrews, the, the idea is that it amounts to a denial of the coming of Christ. If Christ has come, you can't continue in Old Testament sacrifices. Because to continue in an Old Testament sacrifice is 
to say that Christ has not sat down at the right hand of the Father, having completed his great work of atonement. There, you, you, can't, you can't claim to have the reality and then go back to the type and the shadow. That's the point that's being made. And that's the reason why uh, the church cannot go back. This is why it'd be wrong for the church to celebrate Passover. It's wrong for the, uh, the church to offer any kind of sacrifice to, to uh, try to do any of these things because uh, Christ himself uh, has in fact come. Now, as I mentioned, the difference between, another difference between the Old and the New Covenants is, is that the Old Covenant could be, could be broken, the New Covenant will not be broken. And if you were to ask, you know, why will it not be broken? The answer is because God will sovereignly put the love of himself into the hearts of his people. Now, this itself, Jeremiah 31, if you were with us when we were going through the book of Deuteronomy, you'll remember in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10, uh, that that text becomes a, a foundation for many texts in the prophets. And in fact, that Jeremiah 31 itself is built upon uh, that prophecy, which was given all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, where God said, you are going to turn to idols. I'm going to remove you. You're going to be in exile. And then I will bring you back when you're in exile and I will circumcise your heart so that you will not turn away from me. The idea being, if you do not have God himself promise to give you faith, then you will not have it. That's what Moses teaches all the way back in Deuteronomy, the sovereignty of God's grace all the way through the Bible. The Bible is one with regard to its testimony that, that when we think of faith, it's not because you were able to conjure it up yourself. It's because God himself gives it. If you have every single advantage in the world, as all the Old Testament saints did, you have every advantage. You have, you have the tabernacle revealed, the instructions revealed from heaven, and you have God's uh, gracious provision for the atonement, for atonement and for the forgiveness of sins. And you have the same requirements as the new covenant. You, you need to repent and believe. If you repent and believe, you'll be saved. Same thing in the old covenant. You have all of that, but you do not have the promise where God says, I will put the love of myself into your heart. Then you will not believe. And the entire Old Testament history is a validation of this truth. They went from bad to worse until they were exiled because God did not grant the change of heart. But what's happening, what's being prophesied here with the new covenant is that there will in fact be a time during this covenant when God will grant that, when he will sovereignly put the love of himself into the hearts of his people. And when that happens, God will forgive their sins. This is the reason why uh, in, in Jeremiah 31, the text speaks of, in those days, uh, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me. Uh, the point is, is that Jeremiah is living in a day in the old covenant where the, the covenant was disregarded. But there's coming a day when all will know the Lord. How is that going to be the case? It's not going to be from their own actions. It's because, uh, as it says in Jeremiah 32, God will place the love of himself into, into the hearts of his people that they may not turn away from him, that he may not turn away from doing them good. Or in Ezekiel 36, where God will, uh, God will pour out his spirit like clean water. He will remove the heart of flesh and he will give, remove the heart of stone and give the heart of flesh. All this is speaking about the same reality. The, the, the glory of the new covenant is, a, is, a, is that it does not come merely with the letter, but it comes with the letter and with the spirit. And that's the reason why the new covenant will never be broken and the reason why the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is in fact far better. Now you'll notice in verse 13, as we have as, has seen as well, all the way throughout the, throughout the book of Hebrews, the author will always pick up on 
the particular part of the text that is significant for him to make his point. And basically here he's highlighting the idea that Jeremiah himself calls it a new covenant. Uh, if the covenant where the Messiah serves is called new, then that means the Mosaic one must be old. And if there is an old one, in contrast to a new one, then the old one must go away in order to make room for the new. That's the reasoning that he's using from, the, from, uh, from uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. And so, brothers and sisters, as you think about Hebrews chapter 8 and the glory of your high priest, the point is this. You have such a high priest. Whenever you are going through a difficulty in this life, whenever there are temptations to turn aside, whenever there is the wisdom of the world trying to say that Christianity is wrong for this or that reason, what are you to do? You are to consider the greatness of the one who sat down at the right hand of God, who serves in the heavenly tabernacle, that you might have access to the living and true God. You are to consider the greatness of the one who is able to give you this access, the access to the thrice holy and omnipotent God. You are to consider the greatness of the one who is serving as priest in the context of the new covenant built on better promises, serving in heaven itself. In the Christian life, there are many things to learn about how you are to live, many practical things you need to understand about doing this, not doing this. But ultimately, uh, your ability to persevere and live a life that's pleasing to God, your ability to do that goes up in proportion to the way in which you see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the reason why uh, all of these theological points, they're not just academic things. Uh, you will not be able to stand firm unless you understand the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand that he is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Brothers and sisters, may it be that, that, that God would grant you the grace to see the greatness of Christ, that your entire life might be devoted to his service, that you might offer your bodies as living sacrifices to him with joy enduring trials, the trials of this life, knowing that trials produce greater faith, that you might be given the grace to run the race that is set before you, always looking to your great high priest. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for the way in which we have, you've, you've shown to us that we have such a great high priest. Lord, how thankful we are that we have the record of the life, death, the resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have, uh, by your inspiration, the, the, great, uh, the, the great teaching here of an interpretation of what that death and resurrection means for us how it applies to our lives, the way in which the Old Testament itself validates this same thing. Uh, Lord, what a wonderful thing. You have truly led us by the hand and given us everything that we need for faith in your Son. May it be, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith, help us to see uh, the glory of Christ, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, who serves in the tabernacle, not made with human hands. For we ask all this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, 
We'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day, we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place, uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name. Thank you.